You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. The late-breaking abstracts oftentimes generate a lot of interest at SMFM. And one of the studies that Dr. Sade is particularly interested in reviewing was the Optimum study. This study was does progesterone prophylaxis to prevent preterm labor improve outcome and was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. In this study, women were randomized to vaginal progesterone, 200 milligrams daily, taken from 22 to 24 weeks, up to 34 weeks. And they looked at pregnancy and infant outcomes in women at risk for preterm birth. They defined risk of preterm birth either by having a prior previous spontaneous preterm birth less than 34 weeks or a cervical length less than or equal to 25 millimeters or because of a positive fetal fibronectin test combined with other clinical risk factors for preterm birth like a history of previous pregnancy with preterm birth, a second trimester loss, preterm premature rupture of membranes or a history of a cervical procedure. They had three main outcomes in this study. One was fetal death or birth before 34 weeks. The next was a compositive death, brain injury, or bronchopulmonary dysplasia in the neonate. And the third was a childhood outcome, a standardized cognitive store at two years. The crux of this, of their results, were that the vaginal progesterone in this group did not have any difference in impact in any of the outcomes, including preterm birth or the neonatal outcome or the childhood cognitive score outcome. So I think this is something that we use a lot of vaginal progesterone in setting of short cervix in the United States. And this trial has similarities to what we do, but also may have some differences in how who we think may be candidates for vaginal progesterone. So I would love to get people's opinions. And Dr. Sadek, let you chime in. This is probably the best study we have on vaginal progesterone so far. Not only because it's a large sample size, but because it has long-term follow-up up to two years. And the long-term follow-up in this case was designed in the original study. It was not an afterthought or it was not like we later followed these kids or went back and consented them for follow-up. So this was part of the study design. The striking thing, the unexpected outcome is that there was no benefit. But also I'm a bit concerned with some of the adverse outcomes, although at the presentation. This was not highlighted as much, but there were some adverse outcomes in the children at two years that were exposed to the vaginal progesterone. Like There was a higher rate of respiratory, gastrointestinal, and renal disability in these kids. Also, although it was not statistically significant, but at two years, the composite outcome of death or moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment, which was a primary outcome, was actually above one. So it was on the harm side for vaginal progesterone. It was not statistically significant. There was 45% more of these outcomes in the vaginal progesterone compared to the placebo. But the lower limit of the 95% confidence interval was 0.98. So had it been 0.1, it would have been statistically significant. When you talk about safety and harm, these are important, even though it's not statistically significant, but you have to keep that in mind. So if there is no benefit of the treatment, but there is some harm as far as the renal, gastrointestinal, respiratory, and a relative risk on the harm side for neurodevelopmental outcome, the question is, should we still be using vaginal progesterone? 
Mr. Sean, I echo George's concern that we should take harm into context very much so. My interpretation of the Optimum study is certainly that for women with a prior spontaneous preterm birth, this is more evidence that vaginal progesterone shouldn't be the treatment of choice. It should be 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone caporate. The original O'Brien trial studied uh, progesterone in women with a spontaneous preterm birth was a negative trial. I understand there have been some discussion about how to interpret an individual patient meta-analysis it's my contention that large, uh, well-done clinical trials, their treatment effects are probably more reliable than individual patient meta-analysis if there's a difference in the findings. This, for me, is just confirmation regarding that issue. It's hard for me to get my arms around the harm. There's not a lot of long-term follow-up data that we have available for anybody with vaginal progesterone. There is some long-term data that's going to come out for an ongoing large um, trial with 17P, but I definitely think we've got to be cautious in how we view vaginal progesterone and not allowing the mentality that it's equivalent to 17P and its use should be increasingly done in the United States. That can me. This method is I completely agree with Sean and the first speaker. The one critique I have about the study is the heterogeneity and who was included in the study. So since we don't completely know how vaginal progesterone reduces the rate of preterm birth, I think to include a steady population that could have any one of several characteristics, I think, you know, raise the concern that you could include patients in that group who would benefit from the therapy and also patients who would not benefit and actually patients who could potentially have harm. And if you look at subgroup analysis that did, when they looked at cervical length at baseline, you would see that for patients who had a short cervical length, so less than 25 millimeters, the outcomes were more suggestive of benefit. For the obstetric outcomes, for example, although not statistically significant, it was an odds ratio of 0.69. For neonatal benefit, it was 0.54, as opposed to, you know, patients who had a longer cervical length. It analyzed for me, especially in the absence of concrete data on how interventions work, it underscores for me the need to conduct them in generally more homogeneous populations and then to stick to the way those trials were done when we are implementing the findings in clinical practice. I think extrapolating it to other groups or expanding it into a more heterogeneous group result in findings like this where overall there may be no evidence of benefit or even a signal towards harm. I wonder if this doesn't sort of go to our theme of the day of therapeutic creep. So if we find one intervention works really well in one population, then we apply it to other people who have a similar outcome who may have gotten to that outcome by many different either mechanisms or different etiologies, and so that one therapy may not be universal for everyone. And I would echo Dr. Tooley's comment that I my biggest question with this is that you could get into needing vaginal progesterone from so many different ways. A strength of this this would be that had this been a positive study, it would be very clinically applicable because, you know, in clinical practice, patients, they're not exactly the same as what you would see in a randomized trial. They have many characteristics that don't fit into the randomized trial. So this is clinically applicable and generalizable. But then again, I have concerns that it may have diluted out who really may benefit what there is from the vaginal progesterone. 
for the last few minutes here, I would love to open it up to each person if there's another study or another abstract to give a little talk on. So Dr. Blackwell, I can ask you if you have another study that we haven't touched on that you found intriguing for some reason. There are a lot of really good ones. I think just in the, you know, in our overall look at this meeting, the things that I think that hopefully will set a precedent for future meetings and will continue. The main plenary session, six of the studies were clinical trials. There was an entire session at the meeting devoted to clinical trials. I think that it's really very reassuring to see that we've got a group of people acting as trialists that are attempting to answer therapeutic questions with this study design rather than to extrapolate from observational data and make a clinical treatment recommendation. For me, just the overall view of the meeting are these number of trials. And not surprisingly, the majority of the trials showed no differences in some of the newer interventions and or new ways or different ways of doing things. We've spent a lot of time probably talking about some of the positive trials, which I think are really, really important. You know, one of the negative trials that I would point out would be the number two study that from the uh, main plenary session is the effect of treatment of maternal subclinical hypothyroidism or hypothyroxinemia on IQ and offspring. Brian Casey from UT Southwest on behalf of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network presented this study. I think it's an important study because hopefully it will stop something that's commonly done that has no benefit, a lot of cost, and a lot of inconvenience. This study was designed to answer the question, does a screening for asymptomatic thyroid problems in pregnancy and then treatment, if somebody has a condition, does treatment then decrease the risk of offspring neural development compromise? This was called the TSH study. It was very large, screened a large number of women, almost 100,000 women underwent screening and was found that this intervention did not work. And I hope that we will be able to get the word out that this should be routinely stopped. Dr. Tooley, were there other papers that you found of interest or any uh, big takeaways that you took from the meeting this year? Yes, the two abstracts related, uh, one was the one by my colleague, Dr. Cahill, and one other abstract which looked at the ability of electronic fetal monitoring parameters to predict acidemia. Dr. Cahill's study, she looked at over 8,000 women, about 1.7 of whom had acidemia, and looked at different characteristics of electronic fetal monitoring, including the category system, which we all know has not been very predictive, as well as individual components like deceleration area, fetal tachycardia variability. Not surprising, using specific components of electronic fetal monitoring were noted to be overall more predictive than just the category system, as we all know. But for me, the more concerning finding in this abstract and the other abstract on this was the fact that fetal heart rate variability didn't seem to contribute to the prediction well. I suspect there may be some technical reasons for that. It may be that the vast majority of patients had moderate variability, in which case the significance of minimal or absent variability will disappear. But because this was a consistent finding in the two abstracts, it worries me because I and I think many of my colleagues 
will use moderate variability as an important reassuring feature in the midst of other less reassuring features on electronic filter monitoring. It's not directly applicable to, I think, clinical practice right now, but it should be looked at carefully because the main limitation of electronic filter monitoring has been that it has a low positive predictive value, and now we are having features which we've otherwise considered reassuring may not be that reassuring if we can tease out that it's not because of the fact that most will have moderate variability and that's why it's not playing an important role. I think it will be an important consideration in clinical practice. So method, I was going to ask, we are all taught that when you see moderate variability, you should rely on that to say the baby is fine. Yep. Your data, the data from WashU that you mentioned, is a large study. I mean, thousands of patients yeah. included. Should we change what we say or how we teach? I will be quite ready to say yet that we should change our practice. So there's still some more detailed analysis going on to address that first part, this first concern, whether, you know, if you have something that's supposed to be predictive, but 99% of the patients have one feature and only 1% have the other, it will be a poor predictor. Dr. Cahill is digging into some of that. But I think if that turns out to be true, then it will be important to take into consideration in clinical practice. One other thing I've noticed over the past two years since I've been more involved in the QI is the idea that, again, we've always thought we will have a non-reassuring tracing, deliver the baby, and the baby is fine. But it may be selection bias because of the cases that come to QI. But I'm noticing more and more babies who have acidemia, and you look at the tracing, and the tracing is just not bad enough for me to have predicted in a prospective fashion that the gas will be that bad. We're going to do a case series of that to try to see whether there are some other features that may help us in that scenario. But I think, you know, now that we're beginning to look at electronic filter monitoring and the features and what they tell us more critically, I think we will find things that may lead us to change the way we look at it. But I don't think yet. Dr. Sadi, any other abstract that particularly gained your attention? There is one that Sean actually presented, the effect of hindsight and outcome bias on the interpretation and management of intrapartum fetal heart racing. It was a randomized trial where obstetricians at four institutions participated and they were sent fetal heart rate strips to interpret and decide whether the management was appropriate or not. And one of the strips uh, provided obstetricians were randomized to either receiving a good outcome with four good cord gases or receiving a bad outcome with bad cord gases, metabolic acidosis. And it was the same strip that they were interpreting, but they had the outcome different. Those who were given the good outcome tended to agree more with the management and think it was appropriate versus those who received the bad outcome. Now, we all had this feeling before. Many of us think this is what happened, that knowing the outcome, then retrospectively looking at the strip can affect your judgment or what you think should have been done. But this is a randomized trial that really proved this point beyond the shadow of a doubt. I think it has significant implications, obviously, more for medical legal review, but also we shouldn't forget for quality assurance. I know Method mentioned something about that. A lot of us are involved in these, and we review them for our hospital or other hospitals. But in all of these cases, and also in the medical legal cases, we know the outcome. This clearly shows that this process is really flawed, that the process where we do these reviews is flawed. One person actually mentioned to me at some point, they don't tell you to identify the killer or the thief by just saying, this person did it, can you identify him or her? 
they put them in a lineup and then they ask you to identify which one you think is the one that you saw or you think did it. And that's not how we do it in the review medical legal or quality assurance reviews. And I'm wondering whether we should change the method or at least propose maybe some of us or the societies can get together and propose a better method to do these reviews. Dr. Blackwell? I think George brings up the big points. The reason we did this study was because I thought that the amount of bias in the way things are evaluated was underappreciated. Certainly this is not an entirely novel concept. There are publications in our OB literature asking a similar question. I wanted to test this concept in as rigorous a design as we could. I had a randomization and blinding element to it. I do think that the more case surveillance we're doing with QI within our institutions on how to improve our care, and then obviously the risk management and medical legal process is flawed for a lot of reasons, let alone this type of bias. I'm not sure what's the right answer on how to improve those processes. The first step, I think, is to identify that there is bias and then to show the quantifications because it's not a small amount. I think it has a pretty substantive uh, relative risk in the way people behave when they interpret things. So what do you think, Sean, about maybe having a lineup of fetal heart rate strips that include the case that's being reviewed along with other cases that may have had a normal outcome or a bad outcome or some combination of, and then let the expert, be it for a quality, uh, for a QI or for other things, review all and, and give their opinion on all and not knowing which one is the one that's being reviewed. I think it's a very novel and great idea. Certainly within the QI world, it's easier to be able to have an additional case that would be your control case or whatever. I think the biggest issue is to blind people to the outcome. If you're going to interpret a fetal heart rate pattern, you don't have the umbilical cord pH presence of at or absence of HIE to come back and color not only your interpretation but your management decisions. The challenge is once you get into the risk management or medical legal process, there's bias there. You know, there's something going on that's leading to that type of inquiry. But I definitely think that if we were going to improve this process, and as I mentioned, I think the process is impaired. You know, something along those lines that George was mentioning would be great to take some experts, take the next step, you know, to see if there would be a difference in the way people care and clinical status in a more blinded fashion and see what that would result in. My gut is, is that it would significantly reduce the amount of variation between experts and it may decrease the amount of variation between those that are asked to support or defend the quality of care. We do strip rounds exactly the way you are describing. So we pick a strip, go through it bit by bit, and ask residents what they are seeing and what they would do and so on. And then towards the end, we will ask them their prediction of the court guys. And although this has not been rigorously studied, I think anecdotally, I will say that residents get it wrong more often than they get it right. I think further underlying the fact that if we knew what the outcome was, that it would likely, as you found out in the study, impact our interpretation and the sort of management decisions that we would make. It's really interesting and has a lot of implications, I think, for experts who testify in medical legal cases and also with the QI process, truly. You know, once we know the outcome, then all the things that we would have ignored under ordinary circumstances, we would see as significant. We should have dictated all kinds of other actions. Really interesting, I think.
I'm afraid that method that if we did this type of model with experts, we would have a similar performance as you did with your residents. Right, yeah. And to think that information currently is used in court as a way of saying someone is guilty or not guilty is just scary. Yeah. When you guys do your strip rounds, it seems like the ones that we oftentimes do prospectively like this, where most people don't know the outcome, you still know something bad happened because you wouldn't have brought up the monitor strip. Do you toss in totally normal ones? Sometimes the, the goal, especially you know, when it's the more junior residents, is one to make sure they're using the standard terminology and also that they're identifying the actions that needed to be taken. The patient could have had instrumental delivery, but the cord gas is completely fine. So I think we are more testing under those circumstances to decide that with what I have, I should expedite delivery or not or do other interventions rather than predicting the cord gas per se. So we have a lot of normal ones as well. I think the other point that this study really brings up is that the electronic fetal heart rate monitoring, the way we do it currently, is so imprecise and so subjective that you can put on it whatever you want or whatever you think it is. If you want it to look normal or you want it to be normal, you will find normal patterns. If you want it to look abnormal, you will find abnormal patterns. It is that gray zone in fetal heart rate interpretation that allows us to do that and resulted in the study because you could look at variability. I know method mentioned that maybe this is not a good parameter, but you could look at variability and make it look minimal or make it look moderate in your own mind very easily based on the time of the day, for example, or based on how you feel that day or you heard of a bad case the night before uh, or not. Yeah. I'm going to close <laughs> out here. I want to thank Dr. Shadi, Dr. Tooley, and Dr. Blackwell for joining us today and providing their insights on another great SMFM pregnancy meeting. We'll look forward to seeing you guys again following the next meeting. Thank you so much, Bill. This is great. I really enjoyed this session. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.